Hey, Matt, how are you? Oh, doing well. Just sitting here spinning my wheels another day in a global pandemic, but I'm healthy and uh, health is wealth these days. No, well, good to hear. Good to hear you're feeling good. I'm hanging in there as well. I, I've been hearing a lot about plans of nations and candidates to build back better from the hundreds of thousands of deaths that have been caused by the COVID pandemic and the resulting economic shock and crashing economy, which is especially acute in Trump's America here. But uh, with all that talk of building back better, I'm struck with the circular economy as a concept and the rhetoric that has not really begun to, to take hold as strong here in the US as it has in Europe and other places in the world. Um, but luckily we uh, have a great friend who is incredibly well-versed in the area, um, Ava Gladick. Uh, she's a real expert and we're lucky to get to talk to her about it today. Yeah, I'm so happy to have my friend Ava on the show. Uh, she was actually my boss when I interned at Metabolic in Amsterdam, which led to some of my earliest thinking about what we have now turned into Raise Green. Ava Gladick has developed broadly adopted methodologies for systems transformation, the circular economy, and sustainable design. Speaking at forums and events around the world, she shares her vision to accelerate a collective greater impact. She is consistently listed among the top influencers in sustainability in the Netherlands, a country recognized as leading the transition to a circular economy. She works every day to create an economic system that benefits everyone. Such an impressive woman. Um, and in our discussion, uh, she seeks to define the circular economy and says a phrase, keep resources circulating at their highest possible value while staying within planetary boundaries, uh, which is a reference to a concept written up by the Stockholm Resilience Center and Johan Rockström, a renowned scientist there. Can you tell us more about that? There are nine planetary boundaries that have been identified, including biosphere integrity, like biodiversity, climate change, uh, the heating up of the earth from greenhouse gases, ozone depletion, like the hole over the Arctic, Antarctic, atmospheric aerosol loading, so the emissions of uh, aerosols from our industrial activity, ocean acidification from carbon dioxide uh, getting absorbed into the water, biogeochemical flows, like our use of nitrogen and phosphorus for fertilizers and pesticides, and then finally, freshwater use and how all of the human activities change our land system. You could think from forest to pastures. According to the scientists at the Stockholm Resilience Center, we're currently exceeding four of the planetary boundaries, including nitrogen, phosphor, nitrogen, phosphorus, and genetic diversity. And we're getting dangerously close to exceeding others. These boundaries are meant to indicate the carrying capacity of the Earth. That is, if we operate above these limits, we won't be able to sustain our current economy and social systems. Yeah, getting, getting close to some of those and, and over and others, it sounds like. But these quantitative planetary boundaries, um, which, as, as you're saying, sort of dictate where uh, humanity can continue to develop and thrive on the planet uh, for generations to come, are really um, 
are really the drivers of, of circular economy as, as defined in this episode. And crossing these indicates that the risk of generating large-scale, abrupt, or irreversible environmental changes uh, is likely. And so uh, since this planetary boundaries framework uh, was generated, it's, it's brought a lot of interest uh, with science policy and practice about science-based policy. And uh, we're really excited to discuss some of that with Eva today. Yeah, I'm going to give Eva a call up um, because I'm still not quite sure what the circular economy is. Is it just like sustainability where everyone has a different definition? Uh, did Ellen MacArthur Foundation define it? Um, how does it interact with environmentalism in the 21st century? And how does it interact with the social systems that we need to change? Um, so let's talk to Ava. Let's get started um, and give her a ring. Thanks again for, for being here and taking some time, Ava. Great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> We've been hearing a little bit about this thing, the circular economy, but I still have no idea what it is. How is the circular economy different from sustainability in general? I think you'd get a very different answer to that question depending on who you would ask. Most common definitions of the circular economy are that it is um, an economy that's designed to be waste-free and regenerative um, by design. So uh, it's really about closing material cycles and making sure that all of our resources are being circulated throughout the economy at their highest possible value, ideally indefinitely, um, while not creating certain externalities like um, causing damage to the natural environment or using toxic materials. And so ultimately, if you try to manage all of these different externalities, you start to see that circular economy and sustainability have to, by definition, get closer and closer together as a, as a core concept. So our own definition of the circular economy is much more holistic and has to do with creating an economy that keeps resources circulating at their highest possible value while um, staying within the planetary boundaries within the Earth's limits of operation and justly and fairly distributing those resources, which is then a lot closer to sustainability. Cool stuff. Could you talk about how popular this concept of circular economy is in Europe? Yeah, so the circular economy as a concept is hugely popular in Europe. Um, over the last 10 years or so, it's been massively spiking in popularity. The European Commission, so the governing body of the European Union, has um, the well has a circular economy action plan, and this has actually been identified as the primary um, post-COVID recovery strategy as well. So there's a commitment within the European Union to invest in not just business as usual and going back to the same exact models that we had, but actually building new economies from the ground up because the idea is that they're going to be much more resilient. They're going to create higher quality long-term jobs, of course, with a lot of retraining and uh, reskilling of people. In addition to the kind of government and political push for adopting circularity, uh, hundreds of companies have committed to becoming circular. 
So, so this is something that we hear across the world, but with a lot of focus on Europe. And most of the companies that we interact with have some kind of circular economy strategy. So this is um, uh, a primary objective. And one of the reasons that they do that is because um, they recognize that it's not only good for the environment, it's also good for their bottom line. Um, the original study that was done by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and McKinsey in 2011 that looked at Europe in particular and looked at the financial savings from transitioning just 12 sectors to a circular model showed um, that there were uh, up to 500 um, billion US dollars in savings per year from transitioning those sectors um, under a, a circular economy model. Awesome. What I was kind of hoping is maybe we could go through and have a, a particular project or an example about how it could be deployed because I think people in the US, most people don't know what it is. And if they do, they don't know how it could actually be deployed at the local level. Um, so perhaps kind of some tangible projects for folks to get them thinking about how this could be effective. We have worked with the city of Charlotte for the last two and a half years to uh, help them develop a circular economy vision and strategy. So the, um, the municipal government of Charlotte decided that they wanted to become the first circular city in the United States and have this be a core pillar of their economic development strategy. And uh, we brought them over to Amsterdam, had a visioning workshop about how they could uh, potentially become circular. And for them, I think the most important overlap was looking at how the circular economy could not only improve environmental performance and reduce carbon emissions in the city, but also address um, the problems that they have around upward mobility and inequality. The story of Charlotte to me is very interesting, uh, particularly around the potential you identified for business models that could be deployed to help people escape poverty. Charlotte is one of the least um, equal states in the United States. They, uh, sorry, the least, um, they, ha they have the lowest social mobility out of any uh, large American city. So if you're born into poverty in Charlotte, you have less than a 5% chance of getting out of poverty in your lifetime. And that's a pretty um, harrowing, statistic. So um, the idea around our circular economy strategy for Charlotte um, is that they can start to identify the different kinds of resources that they're bringing into the city and create local value chains that can actually provide um, different kinds of employment and build new sorts of uh, more resilient economic cycles for people in the city, and that has to be done very intentionally. It's not something that will happen. It's not that if you go for a circular economy strategy that this is automatically going to become um, a more just and equal society. You actually have to identify the opportunities for um, matching the skills of people that you have locally, um, bringing people from, let's say, um, challenging economic uh, situations, reskilling them, uh, teaching them how to, how to build businesses or work in different kinds of sectors and actually build a new, um, more resilient local economy based on the resource flows that you have in that city. So that's actually um, the plan in Charlotte and um, it's, it's kicking off now, which is great to see. So.
Eva, it's so it's so awesome to think about those types of uh, those types of efforts kind of congealing or, or coming together uh, with both the social aspects as well as the, the physical aspects kind of manifesting themselves in uh, more opportunity, greater upward mobility, as well as you know concomitant with resource conservation and um, and and circularity, frankly and you know, I, I was struck by one of the things you just said earlier about um, thinking of buildings as resource banks, places where you deposit things and they kind of sit there and wait until you withdraw them. And um, I, in, in all of this talk of, of various types of resources, I'm wondering, are there any things that fall outside of the, uh, the definition of what a resource is uh, when you think about the circular economy or or what isn't a resource? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty uh, interesting and abstract question. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I think most things can be considered resources, everything from time to knowledge to um, obviously everything physical from water to um, minerals and metals and biomaterials. Um, is there anything, Franz, that you can think of that you wouldn't classify as a resource? I'm not really, uh, <laughs> not really sure. <laughs> I don't know. I, I like thinking about, uh, you know, love as the the real renewable energy. <laughs> but you know what? Like, if you if you really want to get down to nuts and bolts, I guess like you could even consider love a resource because. Um, and, and trust and all these more abstract things because you can build these things um, in an appropriate way and then make sure that they're uh, growing and, and building on themselves. Um, and, you know, like, so you could even apply circular economy principles to governance and to these types of uh, more kind of abstract esoteric uh, levels. Yeah, I mean, I, I start jumping in. I mean, I was just imagining love as, as a stock and you have actions that either enhance or decrease love as a flow. For and sure. just because you, you can't quantify them now doesn't mean that you couldn't think of those th more abstract things as stocks and flows. Well, I mean, for sure. And that's something that we have done in certain cases, looking at like knowledge or trust or, you know, like doing kind of stakeholder maps, et cetera, because I'm fundamentally we do systems analysis and that's kind of the base methodology for understanding how to move either um, human or natural systems to, uh, to a state that you, to a target state, right? So first you need to understand what's going on. What are those different stocks and flows and what's influencing all of them? And even if you look at something like, um, yeah, trust or love, you can have actions that increase or decrease that and uh, you do have a stock that builds up and that you can then manage more efficiently. I guess this, this kind of reduces these very beautiful ideas to something very technical. So maybe, I don't know if that's the way we want to go, but you can do well, it. There's actually a really fascinating um, poem on the subject um, between art and science by Richard Feynman on the beauty of a flower. Feynman, a famous physicist, uh, was criticized by one of his artist friends for not appreciating the beauty of the flower, um, but it was coming, you know, not just from the superficial beauty, but knowing the biochemistry behind photosynthesis and its evolution that made the beauty all more intense. Yeah.
Um, definitely, definitely something to reflect on more. Um, so, so Ava, thinking back to um, sort of the the opposite of love, or you know, in, indifference here, or, or rather, you know, opposition to the the adoption of circular economy principles. One common argument that we hear uh, sometimes is, you know, that this this type of approach might work well in a place like the Netherlands, where there are a lot of uh, copacetic folks, and uh, there's there's a lot of uh, green thinking and uh, homogeneity and uh, in purpose um, in in the Netherlands and the EU. But are there things that that aren't actually working even in the Netherlands? Um, and what could be improved in that country uh, for sustainability or circular economy as it is? I mean, frankly, Franz, um, we have a long way to go everywhere. We're not. We're very far from circular and very far from sustainable in every single. Uh, country in the world. And so even though the, Nether the Netherlands has branded itself a circular economy hotspot, and definitely um, most of the companies that we encounter here have it as a strategic priority. Um, but e even then, um, the vast majority of products that are designed, of buildings that are built, of well, pretty much everything that's done isn't, isn't circular. And I would say um, that the biggest uh, structural stumbling stumbling block for moving toward a genuinely circular economy is um, the way that the economy as a in general functions we have um, an economic system that is designed to prioritize short-term profits um, to the exclusion of pretty much everything else from human health to biodiversity to ecosystem services to aesthetics um, and that's what you get, you know, you have, um, so, so in order to make things circular, most of the time you have to be really creative and design great sort of uh, partnerships and uh, systems that manage the fact that you are going to get benefits from designing a product in a more circular way five years down the line instead of right now. And um, that, is, that is still the biggest stumbling block here and everywhere else. Insightful as always, Ava Gladick. Always inspired by you, Ava. That's all we have, and just always a pleasure to chat in a formal or informal setting. And uh, looking forward to later this month um, speaking with you again. Uh, I I hope you're do both doing great. I know I talk to you more often, Matt, but um, I hope you're doing great too, Franz. And uh, yeah, I really love seeing all the very green stuff coming by. So it's great. All right, thanks, Ava. Bye, guys. So there you go. Sustainability is not the same as circular economy. And in fact, many companies and governments in Europe are using it preferentially over the idea of sustainability, um, which is almost like a political philosophy rather than a set of kind of quantitative metrics that companies could benchmark against and improve. Um, it's a little more than recycling 2.0, as Eva says. It's actually reconsidering the entire resource usage of any and every material from start to finish, including looking at the business model and design of the product through the use and the reuse of that material. In fact, I mean, it's really even critical to say, why aren't, you know, why, why is there waste? And, you know, there's the old adage that, you know, one, one person's trash is another person's treasure, and the circular economy is a framework to actually monetize that. Yeah, and it's such an important thing to monetize, I think, because uh, it, it really is 
at the end of the day, a financial decision for, for a lot of businesses still, whether to kind of do the right thing. Um, and so whether that's systems upcycling or harvesting buildings as resource banks um, in places like Charlotte that were highlighted in this episode, um, where social mobility is an issue and, and sustainability, of course, is an issue, uh, these kinds of concepts can be so important. Um, one thing I thought was particularly fascinating about what Ava said is how glass reuse is actually better than recycling. Um, and I think I recall Ava telling us at some point in the past that if you're going to use a reusable water bottle, that's great, but you actually have to use it upwards of 50 or more times to make it actually more valuable uh, from a resource standpoint uh, than the amount of material and effort that went into making it. So those are yeah. some of the things I, I think she is so great at articulating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. It's always uh, it's always better to preserve the highest ordered state of an object. Um, you could think of it like if you're going to take a glass bottle and smash it into pieces and remelt it into glass, that's recycling. And you can imagine that would take a ton of energy and release a lot of emissions in the process, depending on where that energy is coming from. Totally. Yeah. And- you know, Ava, I think, is remarkable in so many ways. Her firm, Metabolic, um, that you interned with, is doing uh, great work to support an advanced circular economy across Europe, and now they're expanding into the U.S. Uh, we definitely encourage you to check out uh, their website at metabolic.nl um, and dig into circular economy and incorporate some of those principles and approaches into your daily life. Yeah, we're, we uh, at Raise Green are quite confident that the circular economy will be a major source of wealth generation in the 21st century as detailed analysis of waste streams and their reuse reveals new business models in places that desperately need new sources of entrepreneurship and employment. So again, check out the Circular Charlotte report and the Circular Boulder report, as well as uh, Metabolic's other work in Europe. Um, which continues to advance and inspire uh, the cutting edge of circular economy thinking. Thank you all again for listening today and stay circular, everybody. Mm-hmm.